0: Good evening. Well, welcome. What a beautiful day we had today. I had the opportunity, Michelle and I both, we had the opportunity to visit family today and walk in the park. Really nice, you know, outside, wearing shorts. First time this year, so I got no complaints today. It's a, it's a good day. You can turn with me in your Bibles. I'll need to get my Bible first. To 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. Now we're on the subject of suffering in Christ, and we looked last week at the example of Christ's suffering. That theme continues here, except that now Peter wants us to understand, as we've looked at the example of Christ's suffering in chapter 3, how we are to follow the example of Christ's suffering. So with that as our theme, let's pray and we'll get started. First Peter, chapter 4, verse 1. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you, and looking in your word today, we desire to be strengthened and empowered to do the most difficult of things, and that is to follow your example, to walk in your ways, and if necessary and according to your will, suffering, suffer for doing it. And uh, Lord, we don't want to suffer for doing good, but <clears throat> sometimes you do call us. And uh, when we're called to suffer, we ask that you give us the grace and the mercy and the power and the strength to trust in you during that time of suffering. And uh, Lord, we pray that Peter's words would be powerful in helping us to apply the Spirit's teaching in a way where we can actually give our hearts to you and be at rest when things become difficult and challenging in our world. And Lord, we're heading into, obviously, a time of difficulty and trials and persecution, certainly for being a Christian in this world. But following after you and being obedient to your will may cost us something. It may cost us a lot. It may even cost us someday our lives. And so we need your strength and your Spirit's teaching this evening to be the men and the women that you've called us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I always find that a message on suffering helps me to be prepared for what inevitably will come my way. I don't want suffering, don't look for it, don't desire it, but I do know this. Peter spent a considerable amount of time in his epistle speaking to Christians who were suffering for following Christ. He now says this, and I just want to look at the first two verses to start. He says, and this really gets to the theme of the whole book, which is living for God. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Not speaking of Christ, but speaking of us. That he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. See, the thing is, we're going to see that suffering is used by the Lord to help us to surrender our bodies and our lives to him. And in so doing, to cut off the work of sin in our lives doesn't mean that we don't have sin, but it means that we're done with it. We're done with allowing sin to control us. Christ, through, through his death, he broke the, the chains, if you will. He rendered inoperative the power of sin and even our sinful bodies and, and give, has given us, through the power of the Spirit, the ability to serve him obediently, but only through the power of the Spirit. So in that sense, we are done with sin because of Christ's death and our death in him and our death to sin. So we need to adopt the same attitude. I've always learned that attitude is everything. I've been told that pretty much my whole life. Your attitude towards something changes everything. If you have a bad attitude, well, then you're going to have circumstances that are not ideal. If you're negative, then you're going to more than likely experience a lot of negativity. If you look at life positively, it doesn't mean everything is going to go well, but it does mean that when things are difficult, your attitude is going to be the same as Jesus Christ when you're suffering. Paul said it this way, we're not going to look in Philippians, but let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That needs to be our attitude. You know, Christ suffered crucifixion. Why did he suffer crucifixion? For himself? No, to bring us to God. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 18 talked about it last week. He died to save us from our sins. He died once to save all mankind, and he was willing to suffer for us in order to save us. Now, that's our example to follow. We don't have to to die to save anyone, not even ourselves. But the attitude, not the action, the attitude is what's important. Christ was willing to suffer for us. We should be willing to suffer for others. That's the attitude we're talking about. Or even just to suffer to become more like Christ. But who wants to suffer? Not one of us. And yet our attitude needs to change if we're going to become more like Christ. He was willing to suffer in order to save us. He was willing to die in order to bring sinful man to a holy God. And what's your attitude? What's my attitude? What's our attitude about suffering? Not not if I can help it. Of course, we're all about self-preservation. We're all about avoiding suffering at all costs. But at the end of the day, that wasn't Christ's attitude. He esteemed others higher than himself. That's the attitude, that same attitude that Paul talked about in Philippians that was in Christ Jesus. So if you live your life for Christ and for others, which are the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself— you will undoubtedly in this world suffer persecution, tribulation, difficulties, trials. But what's the attitude of your heart? Christ's suffering dealt with our sin and even its spiritual consequences, and we're grateful for that, but we are called to deal with our sinful nature. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means. To deal with our sinful nature and its physical consequences. Now, what I found about suffering, and we, we, my wife and I were just talking about this as it relates to certain uh, friends and family members that we have that are going through a time of suffering. I mean, we've all been through a difficult time this last year, but we know some people are going through some difficult times. They're suffering emotionally in their family, problems, difficulties, physically, relationships. And it's easy to walk away and say, where's God in all of this? I'm suffering so much. Does God care about me? There are physical consequences when we're called to deal with our sinful nature. And those physical consequences are more often than not physical suffering, or at least emotional suffering. No one likes to talk about this, but suffering actually works for us. It's a great purifier of the heart. Have you noticed that? It purifies the heart, the mind, the soul, and the body. And as you're heart, mind, soul, and body are made pure through suffering, they become surrendered, and it becomes possible for you to worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Suffering is a great developer of proven character and tested spiritual strength. You and I, we all know, right? We know that when we suffer, we grow closer to the Lord if we submit to what Christ is bringing into our lives. We also identify with Christ in his death and the freedom that's that from sin that follows because Christ's death brought freedom. He brought the power of freedom over sin and death. And we experience that when we share in Christ's sufferings. As Paul said, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. The power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now we are too, as we see in verse 2, As a result, he says, the person who's done with sin, who's following Christ's example, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. If you live in this world for the will of God and not your own evil human desires, you will suffer. Because this world doesn't reward people Who deny their flesh and live for God. It persecutes them. If you stand up for righteousness, you'll be canceled at a minimum, possibly fired and persecuted for doing so. I guarantee it. There's really never been a time where the world and the world systems have embraced and accepted our lifestyle and our devotion as Christians. More often than not, throughout the world and throughout time, Christians have been persecuted for what? For what? For following the will of God. Now, the one great consolation I can share with you is that if you're following God's will in your life and you're suffering for it, you will be close with Christ in spirit and empowered and strengthened to bear up under that suffering. That's what the Scripture tells us. You know what would be horrible? Suffering for not obeying God's will. Because then you don't have that consolation, you don't have that assurance. Or, maybe even worse, not suffering because you chose not to do God's will. Then you would be in obedience. Could you even say that you're surrendered to God? Listen, this is what we're going to learn here. Christ lived his entire earthly life denying his own human desires and submitted to God's will. And look what it cost him. We're called to live our earthly lives denying our sinful nature and submitted to God's will. But be prepared to suffer in Christ. Now look at verses 3 through 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Pagans are just people that don't believe in God. that don't know God. Unbelievers, if you will living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Notice, they heap abuse on you because you stand up for the will of God and the word of God, and you don't do what they do. What's their reaction? You would think it would be, well, teach his own. no. Quite the contrary. You're doing what God wants. You're doing the will of God. You're preaching the will of God. I don't like it. I'm convicted by it. So therefore, I either want to kill you, silence you, cancel you, or get you out of my life. Because the power of the Spirit in our lives causes the pagans, the unbelievers, those that oppose God, to not want to hear the truth. And yet, what are we called to do? Preach the truth and to do so in love. And this is why martyrs throughout the centuries have given their lives for the truth. Because when pagans and unbelievers hear the truth and they reject the truth, they're so convicted by the Spirit that the only response they can come to is, kill that person, kill her, kill him. Put them to death, silence them, exile, put them in prison, cancel them take them off of social media. I don't want them telling me that my sin isn't forgiven or that my sin is sin at all. I don't want to hear it. Does that help you to understand why we're being silenced or try, they're trying to silence us in the culture? If I stand up and say that that this is sin, that immorality is sin or sexual immorality is sin and, and people don't want to hear it, uh, you would think if they really didn't care about what we said that their attitude would be, Oh, well, that's your opinion. I don't agree with you. Which, to be honest, would be perfectly acceptable to me in a free country. But no, it's not. It's not at all. Because they don't want to hear the truth, and God has given them over to a reprobate mind, what do they do? They try to silence the truth. Bless you. That should tell you it is the truth. That reaction should prove conclusively that it's God's truth. Because if someone says something that's not true to me, I'm like, oh, well, that's your opinion. Someone can come to me and tell me they're Hindu or they're Muslim. I'm not going to get violently opposed to them because I know the truth. But if someone tells a pagan that there is a God, his name is Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross for your sins, he rose from the dead and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and this, this Bible, this is God's word, If someone tells that person this truth, their reaction is oftentimes violent. They're offended. Why is that? That tells you everything you need to know. Because it's true, and they know it deep down inside, in their spirits, they know it's the voice of God. And they try to silence it, just like they did to Jesus, or tried to do to Jesus. But he rose again, amen? So, we're called to live our earthly lives Denying our sinful nature and submitted to God's will. So what what are we being told here? We've read it already in verses 3 and 4. We need to be willing to suffer abuse from pagan unbelievers for living for God. Remember the theme of this book, living for God. We need to be willing to suffer abuse. What is abuse? They don't like you. They say nasty things about you. They, again, try to cancel you, maybe fire you, maybe call you names. Eventually, it may be worse than that, but we are called to be those who are willing to suffer abuse from these people, from pagan unbelievers, for doing what God has called us to do. And if you're not, ask yourself the question, are you living in obedience or disobedience? Now, let's look at this. We're called to abandon the worldly lifestyle that we once lived as pagan unbelievers. If you were, at one point in your life, Like them, dead in your trespasses and sins. I think we all were, although some people have the good fortune of having been raised in a Christian home and maybe never described as a pagan unbeliever. Uh, I don't know if I can be described as a pagan unbeliever. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in the church. But there definitely was a point where I might as well be, uh, might as well have been uh, a pagan unbeliever. I was living like one. But here's the thing. We need to abandon that. As it says there, we've spent enough time. Haven't we spent We spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do? And it gives us a list of what they did and what they do. And the word debauchery, it's a, it is a, some fancy words here, but they're really simple. You know, debauchery is giving yourself over to your desires, whatever you want. You know, I hear about, and, and, and I promise you, I know very little about these things, only what I hear. But I hear about these apps, one that I've heard about, and I really didn't know too much about it, but watching the news, I learned it had some. It was worse than I thought, actually. Uh, there's an app called Tinder. Now, apparently, people use this app to to basically have relationships with people who are strangers. Okay, I'm, I'm saying it nicely, and or relations with people who are strangers, and and the things they do, it's it's easily described as debauchery. So, if you want a description, there it is. But debauchery is living a life of unbridled lust, excess, that's giving yourself over to whatever you want to do in a shameless way and having no qualms about it, no conscience, no no feeling of, yeah, I know what I did was wrong. No, I'm living for the moment. I'm living my life. I'm doing the things that make me feel good. The heck with everybody else. I don't really care about that. And when we talk about lust, we're talking about destructive cravings. Lust is a destructive craving. It's whenever you want something that's bad for you. We tend to think of sexuality, but it's more than that. If you're eating improperly, you know, you're eating too much sugar, you're, you're, you're putting things in your body that you want. Listen, who doesn't want a cookie? But if you're eating a bag of them every night, that's a lust for sugar. That's a desire for things that are bad for you. It doesn't have to just be the way we usually think of lust. It can be destructive cravings or longings, basically a desire for what's wrong or forbidden. That's, that's what lust is. And drunkenness, we don't, we don't really have to translate that. It's just drinking an excessive amount of wine or strong drink. Drinking is not drunkenness. Drinking is not drunkenness. I don't drink alcohol anymore. I did when I was much younger. I don't drink alcohol anymore. In fact, I like to say I drink as much alcohol as I want. I don't want to drink alcohol, so I don't drink any. You know? but, but I have the freedom to do that. Uh, one could argue as a pastor whether I should. I don't. But what I can tell you is the person who has an occasional drink is not guilty of drunkenness. The person who drinks an excessive amount is. And that's what drunkenness is. Now, orgies, we hear this word and we often think of debauchery. Because it's kind of part of it. But actually, in the original language, orgies are revelry, rioting, and late-night partying. It's where those things take place. It's where the debauchery usually takes place. But orgies really are, when you look at the root word and what it means, it's the the place, it's the the party spirit, the atmosphere of partying down and being up all night. And I always say, you, you read these stories of people who are harmed or, or, or injured late at night. And, 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 you know, you read this story, and you know, they're like, the person was walking in the parking lot. It was 2.30 in the morning. And I stop right there, and I think to myself, late night partying. Nothing good has happened on the street at 2.30 in the morning. I promise you. That's when the rabid raccoon might come out, or raccoons come out, or, you know. That's not the time you want to be outside anyway. And the rabid people are usually on the street, too. That's not where you want to be. And all the time, people who are abducted, things happen, terrible things, seems to always happen in those late-night situations. And it's true. Those late-night situations are described in this way as orgies. And then you have carousing. I I remember my mom when I was a kid saying, I don't want you out carousing. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but I kind of got an idea of what carousing means because it would have been what I would have been doing if my mom said it was okay to go out. And it basically means, check this out, carousing means drinking at a banquet. It means going out, living it up, having a great meal, and drinking. So a lot of this has to do with alcohol. A lot of this that we're seeing the pagans and how they lived had to do with alcohol. You know what's so sad to me? So sad to me. It's not the person who even necessarily has a substance abuse problem. That makes me sad. It breaks my heart. But it's there are so many people in the world who can't have a good time without a drink in their hands, even if they're not drunk, even if they're not like excessively drinking. It's like you see the pictures, you know, they're holding the bottle, they're holding the wine glass, and you're like, do you really need to have that in order to enjoy life? That breaks my heart. It's like Alcohol is at the center of so much of our pagan culture. Have you noticed it? It's probably the main reason that I don't drink alcohol. I don't want anything to do with it. I spent enough time in my past doing that. I like to say, by the time I was 21, I had done all my drinking. And I stopped when I was legally able to drink. But believe me, I did all the drinking I needed to do the rest of my life, certainly before I, I was 21. More than I should have. So I think it's true. We are certainly guilty, of many of us, of having spent enough time doing those things. I'm just giving you the original meaning of these words so you can truly picture it for what it is. It's basically people going out, eating and drinking and having a good time. All right, that's basically what we're talking about. Now, detestable idolatry. This is interesting because idolatry is obvious, but the detestable idolatry are... Uh, or is, the criminal vices springing from the worship of false gods. So you worship a false god, and it brings a criminal vice in and through your life. What do I mean? The worship of false gods was always, in the ancient world, an attempt to gain material things for themselves. Like, you worship a certain god. Like, you worship the god of storms if you wanted it to rain as a farmer so your crops would do well. You worship the god of prosperity if you wanted your business to do well. But the reason you were actually worshiping those false gods, it really didn't have to do with them. It had to do with what you believe they could do for you. It was selfish. Idolatry is always selfish. In fact, Paul said greed is also idolatry in his epistles. So what it tells us is idolaters are very selfish and greedy people. They do what they do, not because they're devoted to other things, They're devoted to themselves. And they believe that doing these things, these pagan rituals, will bring about the end that they want in their own lives. Prosperity. You know, it's sad. As many people become Christians, and their desire is for prosperity. They might as well be idolaters. They're coming to God, but they're not really worshiping God. They're simply here hoping that that somehow they'll do well and prosper and be blessed. They're really just looking for God's blessings. They're not looking for a relationship with God. And this detestable idolatry talks about that. It also talks about the formal sacrificial feasts that were held in honor of these false gods. And the truth is, those feasts were very much where all of these things took place. The orgies, the carousing, the drunkenness, the lust, the debauchery. These people lived like this. This was their religion. And he's saying, "You've spent enough time in the past doing that. Now it's time to move on. It's time not to do what the pagans choose to do. Notice, choose to do. It's time for us to do the will of God, and even be willing to suffer abuse for doing the will of God. We cannot expect pagan unbelievers to understand our Christian lifestyle. I mean, don't expect it. If you tell them, you know I go to church on Sunday,' they're probably going to laugh." Oh, are you kidding me? You know, I'm out all night on Saturday night. I I would never get up to go to church at 9 o'clock in the morning. Maybe 9 o'clock at night. As if. See, they live excessively. Living excessively is always bad. Okay? They live excessively while we live in moderation. Moderation. Okay? They abandon their life to pleasure while we surrender our lives to God. There's a great contrast between the pagan unbeliever and the Christian who lives for God. And Peter's making that clear. Listen, be aware that pagan unbelievers, those that reject Christ, will be held accountable by God for their abuse of Christians. Those that abuse us today will one day stand before the throne of God and have to give an account for their behavior. We rather will stand before God and be rewarded for our faithfulness, if we're faithful. And Peter wants you to be faithful. The Holy Spirit is encouraging you to live for God and to experience the reward of doing so. Now, here's what we read. Verse 5, But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason, now he goes on to say, this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. That's referring to the, the judgment of men against them, the abuse that those that live for God experience in this world. Notice he says that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, the physical world, but live according to God, or live according to God in regard to the spirit. See, they can't do anything to us spiritually. They can, at worst, put us to death or harm us or abuse us in the body. Now, looking at that, there's a lot I want to say about that. I'm going to just kind of go into this next section carefully. There's a few things I want to say. First, I want to say Peter wants you to know, those people that abuse you, one day they're going to have to answer for it. Now, hopefully they'll repent. Hopefully they'll cry out to God and receive forgiveness. But even so, they're going to be held accountable for their actions. They are. Christ will one day return to earth to judge the living and the dead. I'm saying that all the time. And those that are alive will stand before the millennial throne judgment. That is, those that are alive when Christ returns, they're going to stand before Christ on earth during his kingdom age. And those that have died will stand before the great white throne judgment talked about in Revelation 20. But everyone gets to give an account for how they responded to the gospel. And if you've rejected it and abused his people, you will give an account for your actions. You will. Now, I don't think there's anyone here today who's, you know, martyred, people or anything, but I'm saying those people that are abusing you and say all manner of evil against you and hate you and despise you for your relationship with Christ and you're preaching the truth, they will have to give an account. That's what Peter wants to encourage these Christians with. I think we should be encouraged as well because Christ will one day raise all the dead to stand in his holy presence and those that have rejected the gospel will be judged by God for all eternity And those that have responded to the gospel will live in God's presence forever and ever. Amen? That's encouraging to a group of people who are being persecuted and abused. That's incredibly encouraging. And that's what Peter is doing. Now let's talk about verse 6 because there's some confusion about this. We talked a a little about these things last week. Be aware that Christians will be blessed by God for the abuse they received from pagan unbelievers. That is, if we receive abuse from the world, that's what we're talking about, let's just say the world, the world systems, the culture, as Christians, for being Christians, we receive abuse, we're blessed, we're blessed, because we're suffering with Christ, we're doing his will. When we stand before God, I guarantee that those that have suffered the most, when they stand before God, aren't going to say, oh, you know, I really wish I suffered less, because when they stand before God, they're going to be rewarded for their faithfulness in their suffering. That doesn't mean anyone wants to suffer. But if you have been called through a time of suffering for being a Christian, I promise you the day will come where you'll look back and you'll say, the Lord blessed me through that. Not not because of the suffering or not that suffering is a blessing necessarily, but that through that suffering you experience the blessings out of buffetings, the blessings of Christ in suffering. I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians Because that book Paul wrote all about the blessings he experienced in his sorrows and his sufferings. Anyway, there are two things I want to mention here because there's a phrase there that freaks a few people out. It says, for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body and live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, there are two aspects to this and two ways to look at this. And I think both are true. The first is that Christ preached to those who had died in faith. Let's say that you were alive like Abraham or David and you died in faith waiting for Messiah. And you were in that place we talked about last week, Hades or Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Well, Christ, when he descended, as we said last week, he descended into the heart of the earth. He descended into Sheol, that place of the dead, and he proclaimed victory to those disobedient spirits. That we talked about last week. But that's not what we're talking about this week. Here we're finding out that Christ preached to those who had died in faith and were waiting to, for Messiah to come. Now, that, we know that's true. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to go to the spiritual prison known as Hades, and the Jews, as I said, called it Sheol, this is consistent with, Jesus, with what Jesus said concerning the sign of Jonah, that for three days and three nights he would be in the heart of the earth, the place of the dead, and he was. Remember Jesus in Luke's gospel chapter 16, I encourage you guys to read this, in verses 19 through 31. Last week we talked about it. He referred to this spiritual place, the spiritual prison, for the righteous as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. We know There was a chasm. And on the other side, there was this place of torment. And when Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, it's not necessarily a parable. The rich man was wicked. He was in this place of torment. Lazarus was in this place of blessing. The same place that Jesus referred to when he said to the the robber on the cross, not really a thief, a robber, which means he actually hurt people when he stole from them or threatened them. He said to the robber on the cross, today you will be with me in Greek. Paradiso, paradise, not heaven. The place of the righteous dead. The Greeks called that place paradise. Hades was generally the place of the dead, and most often referred to that place where there were those who were wicked. But there was another place in the Greek mind. I only say that because the Greek language is employed to communicate this, called the Elysium or the Elysian Fields or paradise. And the Greeks had that concept as a place where the good people went when they died. Now, we don't believe that good people are saved, right? We believe that people who put their faith in Jesus Christ are saved. These people put their faith in Messiah. And Paul also taught that Jesus descended into Hades. I mean, this isn't the only place where we learn this. We know he descended to set the captives free. Even David and Job, I mentioned this last week, knew that this day would come where Messiah would descend into the heart of the earth, to the place of the dead, and free those who were waiting for him to come. So while he was there, what did he do? You ever think about that? What did he do? Well, we know last week he proclaimed victory over the disobedient spirits. We talked about that. I'm not going to get into that again today. But while he was there, he preached in the Spirit's power to spirits that were waiting for him. Their bodies, they didn't have resurrected bodies at this point, but they had a heart for God. Who are these waiting spirits to whom Jesus preached? The spirits of those who obeyed God and died before Christ came. Those that waited with anticipation for God to save them from their sins and bring them into the presence of God for all eternity. Those that accepted the preaching of the prophets Abraham is mentioned. Abraham, David, all those that were waiting by faith. And what did Jesus preach to them? Well, it makes perfect sense that he preached the gospel to them. It's appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment. Now, these individuals had died in faith. But the gospel hadn't been preached to them. They were were by faith made righteous, but, but they had to respond to Christ. So Christ comes to them, preaches this message, The righteous at Abraham's side already believed. The unrighteous didn't. The unrighteous had already rejected God's grace, so they're not the ones receiving this message. He preached a proclamation to them, very similar proclamation to to that which he preached to the uh, disobedient spirits. It's the truth that he had accomplished victory over death itself and freedom for the righteous captives. Now, when he preached to the disobedient spirits, it was in a way of preaching victory over them When he was preaching to the righteous dead, he was preaching victory for them. Are you with me? Victory over the disobedient, victory for the righteous. But it's still victory over sin and death, amen, on the cross. He had accomplished that. And why did Peter mention this group of righteous uh, waiting spirits? Why Why did Peter bring this up? Remember who he's speaking to, to whom he's speaking. Remember people who were suffering, who needed to be encouraged. They had suffered the abuse at the hands of pagan unbelievers. They had suffered the earthly judgment of bodily death. Many of them had been put to death. And they would be judged and found righteous in their bodily suffering. They would live in God's presence for eternity for their obedience to God's will. And that's the encouragement Peter offers for living for God. That even if they take your life and you suffer in eternity, you will be blessed for having followed God's will and lived for him. Now, Peter may have mentioned these faithful spirits, given their obedience to God. This would have greatly encouraged these saints in their suffering and encourages me. And they would soon proclaim victory over their enemies, just as these righteous servants did. And I encourage you, because the day is coming, and I long for it, when we'll stand there and we'll see God set things right. Things will be made right. No more celebrating unrighteousness in our culture. No more harming little children or those in the womb. No more celebrating sins. None of that. Righteousness forever. Oh, I can get behind that. And that is encouraging. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, as John said at the end of the book of Revelation. Christ had been preached to those who had died also in faith. Now, it's true that I believe, but the scripture teaches, that Christ, when he descended into Hades, preached to the righteous, preached victory over the unrighteous, and victory for the righteous. But you can also look at this verse another way, and I think this is equally true. When he says, for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, there's an implication there that they heard the gospel when they were alive. That also is a legitimate translation. Now, both are true, and you can take your pick which one you think Peter means. I kind of think he's talking about all of them. But here we know that Christ had been preached to those who had died in faith, having received the gospel. See, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus and his disciples to preach the gospel to those who were alive. And many of these people believed and became Christians only to die, waiting for him to return. Do you know anybody in recent history, as, who's a Christian who has died, waiting for him to return. Be encouraged. They're not abandoned. It's still true that, that they were preached to, and though they've died in faith, even though they died before Christ's return, they're still experiencing the blessings of God, actually in eternity in God's presence even now. Amen? That, that's a wonderful thought. That's also encouraging to those who had lost family members and loved ones to the persecution in Asia Minor and throughout the world at that time. They're now dead, but they were alive at one point, And while they were alive, unlike those that died before Christ in the distant past, they believed by faith. There were individuals who were alive when Christ was walking the earth and were alive to hear the gospel preached, even last week, and have since died. And I think it's true that this applies as well. Why did Peter mention this group of righteous believers? Listen, they also had suffered abuse at the hands of pagan unbelievers. That's, what, that's the common thread. That those that were alive, those that were alive and died, and even those in the distant past, all of them had suffered abuse at the hands of pagan unbelievers. And yet they were victorious. Amen? Amen. That's the encouragement. So no matter what happens to you for living for God, you will be victorious over the enemies of Christ. And that's why you should be encouraged by Peter's message tonight. They had suffered earthly judgment, bodily death, they would be judged and found righteous in their bodily suffering, and they would live in God's presence for eternity for their obedience, just like those we spoke about earlier. And I believe Peter mentioned these faithful believers, given their obedience to God, to inspire those who were receiving this letter to continue to live for God. They would soon proclaim victory over their enemies, just as those who had died did, and those throughout the centuries Okay, so that's the message of encouragement. Uh, That's the message of following Christ's example in suffering. Um, I think what I'm going to do actually is, uh, there's a little bit more here, and rather than rush through it, I think what I'm going to do is end our study because we're going to get into following Christ's commands in suffering, and uh, a lot of that has to do with how do we live. We've talked about A lot in terms of what our hope is in in following Christ's example. But now when we talk about, okay, well, if we're going to follow Christ's example, what does that mean? We're going to see next week that we're talking about being prepared for his return, loving one another, being hospitable to one another, and using our spiritual gifts to bless one another. I don't want to rush through that. There's a lot there. I wasn't sure how long I would spend in that first section, and even though it's six verses, there's a lot there. The gist of what I've shared with you is an encouragement in suffering. Because that's what Peter's saying to the suffering saints. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. They can say all manner of evil, and they are saying all manner of evil against us. Don't you know it's our fault that everyone has to wear masks? You know, it's our fault. It's, it, it, you know, I, I was thinking about this over a year ago. I remember how they vilified conservative and orthodox Jews at the beginning of this pandemic. Now, I'm not saying it was the wisest thing for people to gather when we didn't know much about what was going on here, but how quick the world was to go after us, the church, how quick the world was to go after Jews and those who would gather. And I remember it was like we were the enemy. It was was our fault Brothers and sisters, be careful. We very much are following in the footsteps of those who suffered during the Holocaust in the last century. The first thing pagan unbelievers do towards people of faith like us is vilify us. The first thing they do is marginalize us and identify us and blame us for their suffering. Why? Because they don't want to hear the truth. You know something? If we preach the truth, we can expect to be treated like this. Now, of course, you can just be quiet. You can be very careful about what you say. I don't think you should say anything in social media. That's like playing in the devil's arena. But when you're sharing your faith, just know, just know that those that don't want to hear it want to silence you. It doesn't mean we don't preach it. We preach it in love. But I promised you that eventually the world, because the Bible tells us this is true, because Jesus told us this is true, because prophets told us this is true, that eventually the world will reach a point where the desire to, to, to not hear the truth will cause them to put us to death. Is it any surprise? Not that this has anything to do with preaching the gospel, but I've noticed how anyone that says the truth about the biological fact of there being two genders, that, again, that's a biological fact. That's not a feeling. It's a biological fact. One of the most basic scientific facts that I learned even before I got into high school. There are two genders. But say that and see what happens. The abuse. You'll suffer from pagan unbelievers, right? If you say that ripping a child from the womb is murder, then, oh, no, it's health care. And again, we're not talking about preaching the gospel, but we are talking about teaching the truth, right? Or preaching the truth. How does the world respond to basic fundamental facts when they don't like them? The same way they respond to the gospel. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to be convicted of the truth. They want to live in a reprobate way. And we, brothers and sisters, are the reason they can't just do what they want to do without being convicted. But that's why we're here. We are here, by the power of the Spirit, to convict the world of sin. You're filled with the Spirit, right? Amen? And no one calls him Lord but by the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit is given and has been given to convict the world of sin. That word convict means convince. It's a better way to think about it. Convince the world of sin. So when you and I, when we preach the gospel, and we tell people that what they're doing is wrong because God's word says that he created them male and female, when we tell them that murder is wrong, thou shall not kill, when we tell them that, that the sins of uh, sexual immorality and other things are, are, are an offense to God. And they don't want to hear it. You can expect that living for God will bring about the abuse of the world. Let's ask the Spirit to encourage us as we close our service. Lord Heavenly Father, we need your encouragement. We live in a very, very wicked world. But the world has always been wicked. It was wicked when you came. It's been wicked since. But wickedness and unrighteousness will increase in these last days. And if anything, we're encouraged because it means we're getting closer to your return. Lord, I only ask that you'd strengthen us and that we would live for you and not be found unfaithful in these desperate, dark times. Let us go out swinging. (laughs) If we're going to suffer, let us suffer for doing good and standing for your word and living for you and worshiping you freely. Let us be counted worthy of the name of Jesus Christ to suffer for that name if necessary. Oh Lord, may we honor you in all things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.